reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 29 to 44. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognised on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognise the time of your visitation from God. It is lovely to be back and sharing in this way again, um, although this is my first time preaching using Zoom. Um, so this journey that we see Jesus, this is the culmination of a journey that started about 10 chapters ago back in Luke 9. Um, so it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then there's this whole journey, which we've, I know some of the bits that we've been listening to and hearing, and we know the story of Jesus and this whole long journey that takes him to Jerusalem, which is then the culmination of all of his work. And it leads him to next Sunday to the cross. Um, this passage, this short passage specifically, is littered with callbacks and royal motifs, both from Jesus's own story, from scriptures, and also from Greco-Roman culture. So we start off with um, what the crowds are yelling, uh, which is, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. But if we look back to Luke 2, um, back in uh, the nativity story, the angels are saying, glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace among those and whom he favours. So you see this is straight away there's this parallel and we are being presented this image of Christ as the coming king. Um, Jesus is heralded as a saviour which is a word that is often used for the Roman emperor. Um, Jesus is riding on a foal, a mule's a child, which again it's a very royal image. Solomon rode David's mule um, and this was a statement that Solomon was uh, David's successor, that he had been chosen by David to be the next king. Um, Jesus rides on a cult that no one has ridden, which is 
parallel to into Zechariah, where we see, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And also when a general or when a Caesar was coming to a city, the crowds would come out to meet them on the road and to cheer them into the city, just as we see the crowds doing here with Jesus. They are coming out, they are throwing their cloaks on the floor and they are cheering Jesus's entrance into the city. We also see a parallel between David and Jesus where David, when at the end of his reign goes out and he weeps, he goes out of the city and weeps on the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus is coming back into the city, he weeps and then he enters the city. So we see the writer and Jesus playing with this idea of royal imagery, of presenting Christ as this coming king, as this saviour, as someone who's going to transform things. And the what the disciples are yelling out, as well as it being mirroring what the angels were heralding at the beginning, is also problematic for the status quo. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In this setting, these two things are both well this thing is both political and theological and they are inseparable and the pharisees are recoiling from this because they know what it means there is a theological act jesus is declaring himself this long expected king promised by the prophet here i am i am ready to to to, to take up that mantle essentially and this is also what it's what israel's kings did this is how they arrived and so it's also a political act it is saying that Israel's king has returned. And I'm sure I remember being told as a kid that um, Jesus wrote this cult to confuse expectations. Like he wasn't, he should have been riding on a war horse, but actually this isn't true. He's riding on a foal because that's what it says in scripture. And this is exactly what people were expecting. This is exactly what they were waiting for. Like I said, in Zechariah, it says, see your king comes righteous gentle riding on a donkey on a colt they know exactly what's going on and they understand and the pharisees are basically saying shut up you're going to get us all killed which you might think seems like a reasonable and understandable reaction when we look at things from a literary perspective i find it quite interesting that luke's portrayal of the pharisees is different to the other gospels luke seems to portray them as actually seeking a relationship, at least in part with Jesus. There are three times that the Pharisees are inviting Jesus to have a meal with, him, with them, to, to sit with them. Um, and it's fair to say each time this is recorded, there is a, a level of tension that um, happens between the two. So we had um, in Luke 7, 36, you have the, the woman of questionable, um, I guess, employment. Uh, who is anointing the feet of Jesus with ointment and the Pharisees don't like this. And then you have the one where Jesus comes in and he doesn't, he sits down, and he hasn't washed his hands and they don't like that either. And then when Jesus comes in and he heals the man with dropsy on the Sabbath and all of these interactions, they seem to be, there's a level of the Pharisees wanting to create connection with Jesus, but each of these counters, encounters lead to hostility. And in one, specifically in Luke 11, it leads to the, the Pharisees deciding that they're going to now try and entrap Jesus. But generally in Luke's portrayal of these people, they come across as deeply flawed and problematic, 
but they're not actually dangerous. Whereas Marx Pharisees are directly hostile from the beginning. And by Mark 3, 6, they want him dead. Luke's Pharisees are tone policing Jesus, you might want to say. They rather keep Jesus close and keep him in check than oppose him outright. They want to keep his teaching and his activities and his uh, what he is doing safe and, and within certain boundaries. They want to suppress the radical side of what Jesus is doing. They want to play down the side that seeks to oppose the rich and powerful. In Mark's gospel, you see the Pharisees oppose Christ after his arrival in Jerusalem. However, in Luke, the Pharisees don't appear again after this point. And actually they seem to be warning Jesus of a, of a danger that's coming. In this interaction, Jesus obviously refuses the Pharisees' request. He doesn't want to keep his disciples silent. In fact, he says, if these disciples were silent, the stones would shout out. He recognises the, the danger that he faces, but he, he wants people to embrace the change and the difference and the, the radical message that he is bringing. And he is brokenhearted when he recognises that the city can't perceive that truth that he's bringing, the things that make for peace, which I think is an interesting phrase because when we think of peace, I don't always think of Jesus when I think of peace on one level because his actions and his teaching seem to be so disruptive and so jarring to so many. But he's, this is what he says he's bringing. He's bringing peace and that these people don't recognise it. Pharisees want order. They don't want disruption. But the peace that Jesus is bringing is not a peace of order. It's not a peace of quiet. It's not a peace of keeping things just smooth and gentle. It's a peace that is the character of the kingdom that, is more about wholeness and well-being, and it is shown through the acts and the um, engagement of Christ's life with those around him. And we can see what that character is. This is the so this piece is the character of God's kingdom. Luke indicates that the Pharisees seem to be unmoved by. Um, by John the Baptist's call for the nation to become baptised. And they are outwardly hostile towards Jesus, but are welcoming those that they deem to be not clean or not fit, or um, they just don't fit in. So they, he, they tell him off for welcoming tax collectors and for healing the lame on the Sabbath. And they call him blasphemous for claiming to forgive sins and for not fa fa uh, um, fasting and for his other transgressions that they deem as being too disruptive. And we can see that this is the Pharisees' focus. The Pharisees are all about this order. And then Jesus shows up and each time he condemns them for this hypocrisy, for their social pretentiousness, their lack of compassion, for greed, for a self-justifying self-righteous approach and attitude and spirit 
that doesn't have really any humility when it comes before when they come before God. And he says that they are essentially willfully refusing this invitation to be part of God's kingdom. And so we can see from this, from Jesus's interaction, that the character of God's kingdom is one that is full of compassion towards those that are in need, that shakes off the greed of the, and the material world, that is all about humility before God and accepting God's invitation to be part of this new way of being and this new world. It is all about lifting up those that are at the bottom into equal standing with everyone else and with Christ. We can see from each, from the Pharisees and from Jesus, where their focus is and where they're investing their energy. Jesus says, they will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognise the time of your visitation from God. And the reality is this temptation, this, this desire to be more devoted to, to unity and to a peace that is a peace that brings about quiet and about and about lack of disruption is always there. Um, Martin Luther King writes in one of his letters, um, the letter from Birmingham City Jail, the temptation to be more devoted to order than to justice or to prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And I love that, I love that, that juxtaposition of those two piece, like the, the piece that is basically order and subjugation and keeping down and maintaining the status quo and the positive piece, which is one that happens through the presence of justice. What do we want? What do we want to step into this morning and beyond? Do we want this justice? Do we want, are we willing to embrace the messiness that it takes to bring it about? Or are we the ones telling others who shout out for justice that they need to be quiet and they need to speak nicer? Are you about order or are you about integration? I've been thinking about our um, series that we're doing on anti-racism and the book that we're reading at the moment. <laughs> And one of the things we talked about on Wednesday was whether or not we other people or we make judgments about people based on, the, on their appearance, specifically in this context about um, obviously their, the, the color of their skin. And do we make, but it's not just about that, it's about do we make judgments based on their gender or on their age as well? Do we make judgments based on what we perceive to be what they're able to do and what they're not able to do? And we make all these judgments about their personalities, about their tastes, about their theology, about, about what they're gonna think, just based on how people look. And I wonder about the Pharisees and this desire to, to categorize people and to, to put people in boxes. And to say that if you wanted to be part of us, if you wanted to be part of what it is to be right, then you have to assimilate. 
the Pharisees will want Christ to assimilate. They want him to look like them, to sound like them, to have their tastes, their ideas, and their way of seeing things. And how often do we ask others to do the same? Do we ask people to assimilate to our culture, our way of doing things, to leave a part or even most of themselves at the door and to conform to what makes us feel comfortable? How often do we lean into that kind of peace rather than the positive peace that is the presence of justice? There was a quote as well in the book this week that really struck me um, about how the, the, the quest for racial diversity cannot be a value on your church website. It must be at the heart of all we do. And this is the bit that really struck me and be something that we suffer for. And I wonder, what does this suffering look like? Because I think it's this suffering that's being spoken about, this is Ben Lindsay's quote, that leads ultimately to that whole authentic peace that is the presence of justice. Um, Mike, I hope it's okay that I'm quoting you because you posted last week, uh, and I, it just, again, it really struck me. The blind man is seen as bad by society because he doesn't fit into the expectations and the, the predetermined norms. But Jesus rejects that logic. It is not the blind man's fault, but society's fault for resisting his equality with all of us. And it's only the man who Jesus makes his equal, who is able to see Christ's true identity. I just, I thought that that really hit me hard and in such a great way. And, it, and I hear echoed in those words, the warning that, that Christ is and his lament for Jerusalem. That you did not recognize the things that make for peace, which are now hidden from your eyes. Because indeed the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will crush you. Because it's only the man that makes, that Jesus makes his equal, that is able to see Christ's true identity. It is only when we embrace Jesus's kingdom, God's kingdom, the character of God's kingdom, that we are able to see Christ's true identity, when we are able to recognize the things that make for peace. I want to be part of that kingdom. I want to be part of that good news. I think it's interesting that often, especially those of us that have intersecting privileges such as our colour of our skin or um, our education, our sexuality, our, our gender, our class, our economic status, we still often try and identify ourselves with the poor and broken from the gospel and not in a way that recognizes necessarily that we need saving, but in a way that we also, it's almost like we're trying to record, we don't want to recognize in ourselves the things that actually probably make us more like Pharisees or the others that condemn Christ and call for order. I think that that is something that we need to be looking at ourselves. Like where are we missing this kingdom? Where are we not recognizing those things that make for peace? Because I don't want to get to a point where those things are then hidden from my eyes.
Jesus's actions through the gospel and specifically now are all alluding to this breaking in of God's kingdom, of a new way of being, of a new way of doing things. And this is going to upset and annoy anyone who is invested in keeping things as they as unjust as they are. And that reality has not changed today. They, the Pharisees recognize the danger, they recognize the risk, and they recognize what might happen if the status quo gets upset. But we look at Jesus and he ignores all that anyway, because Jesus, next Sunday, dies for us all. The ultimate cost of integration, that ultimate sacrifice and suffering for the salvation of all. And Jesus's way is completely unstoppable. In the end, love always wins. Because there will always be those that are willing to take that hard road to justice and to go against the grain. There are always those that are willing to stand up to what is wrong and to disrupt the peace, the negative peace, to embrace that true peace of justice. The spirit of the Pharisees is so easy for us to enter into, especially those of us that are part of faith communities and religious groups. I think that's why Luke uses this Pharisee image in this way, because already when he's writing and the, the church is only a few decades old, he's already seeing this legalistic, this, this order-driven way of approaching God's kingdom creeping back in. there is this danger that we miss the signs of peace, that we miss God's kingdom because we are afraid of being uncomfortable. We are at our Pharisaic worst when we disagree and criticize those that are calling for justice, equity and peace. And so we do look to next Sunday, we look to Easter Sunday. And normally at this point, I always think that like, I, I don't know how many sermons I've heard now that ask me, which crowd am I in? Am I going to be in the crowd that's cheering or am I going to be in the crowd that is calling for Jesus' crucifixion? But actually, I think I'm more interested in what you do after the crowd is dispersed. What happens tomorrow? What happens the Sunday after next week? What happens after the hashtag has stopped trending or it's not cool anymore or when it doesn't actually directly affect you or it could cost you something if you opposed it? Do you still care enough to risk it? Do you still care enough to sacrifice for justice, for equity, for God's peace? I always think it's interesting, like, since we've done our vision process, we started calling our Sunday morning service Provoking Faith. And I think that the question I want to leave you with this morning is, are your sensibilities provoked or are you provoked to do something different tomorrow? I would like to hear um, your thoughts on today's sermon. Who would like to share first? 
I'm happy to. Okay, go ahead. Uh, thank you, John. It's so nice to have you back. Um, I really enjoyed the um, that idea about you can go with the the piece that's there that's almost easy, the negative piece, but actually that we need to be challenging ourselves and our wider community to look for something that's actually maybe doesn't feel peaceful, doesn't feel comfortable, but looking at what's being controlled and that, that tone policing to say, actually, it may be comfortable and peaceful, but actually if it's not fair and it's not just, then actually that's not the, the love that we should have from, from God and we should be seeking to, to have. I, I think that's really important that actually the, the peace doesn't have to feel peaceful and striving for it often won't feel peaceful. It will feel uncomfortable and we have to push ourselves and, and try and go with that um, as much as it's sometimes hard work and we don't necessarily want to feel that, that discomfort while we try and, and do what we know God wants us to. Um, Thank you very much, and that's really insightful. Thank you. Um, would anyone else like to share? I I kind of feel like, um, and yeah, it was really lovely to have you back, and thank you so much for for such a rich a rich sermonette. Um, when you were saying that the Pharisees wanted order and quiet, I kind of immediately thought of our current government. Um, and everything that's been happening with the kind of the police and crime um, and courts bill that's been um, discussed so kind of um, constantly in the news. Um, and it really kind of struck me that, I mean, like for me personally as a young person that we are, we are living it like through times where, where our government wants people to, to be quiet to be I don't want to say controlled because that's definitely um more kind of dramatic language but um and when you said one about about Jesus wanting peace that's about wholeness and well-being and um yeah I, I saw a quote on on Instagram the other day that said those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable and I feel like and I mean I can put my hand up and say I haven't read the entirety of the bible but you know, when when Jesus came into places and was seen as being disruptive or, you know, or violent, um, you know, like the turning over of, of the tables in the temple. And, you know, it really just made me think that, you know, that the that the peace that Jesus wants is is one of justice and and is one of 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 a society where there is there is wholeness and there is um there there is a an uncomfortableness but where we are all coming together to address an order that that we don't want like we don't want that order to be oppressive um yeah so that's kind of kind of really what kind of rung, rung through with me, I guess. 
Thank you. Thanks for sharing, Jess. It is very poignant right now, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, there are two thoughts going through my head, and I'm sorry because these are not quite in the same vein as what we've been talking about. But the, uh, the thing that really caught me this morning was the fact that the quote had never been written before. And I wondered why that detail was included. And I am no horseman, I'm not au fait with things, equine particularly, but any horse that I've seen that has a saddle or a blanket or a person put on the back of it for the first time tends to go boogaloo and kick and buck and, and, uh, and try to shake it off. And yet this quote that had never been written before seems to peacefully and quietly carry Jesus on his journey. And there was something about that that moved me very deeply. And I wondered, was there something about, was there something in the animals knowing or awareness? This is going to sound crazy. Who was on his back? Who on her back? Who just, is there something about the presence and touch of Jesus that calmed those instinctual and instinctive fears of, I, know, I must rid myself of this. And um, so there was something about the quote that moved me very deeply. And I, I, I wondered what was going on for the quote. I also wondered, and I've always wondered, what was going through Jesus's mind in that journey? Uh, because my heart breaks for him. I think he's incredibly isolated in this journey. Incredibly isolated with the roar of the crowds and, and did that feel fickle and empty? Did it feel authentic? Did it touch him? And he knew what they had. And, um, and, and yet he steadfastly and resolutely on his journey because of, because of the outcome of what, what he would affect and what he would bring. And uh, again, in, in thinking about the visual of the, the story, I've often thought, where would I be in that? Would I be in the crowd reading Hosanna? And somehow I doubt it. I think I'd be observing, observing and thinking, what's going on for him? What's going on in his head? What's going on in his heart? And uh, yeah, so those are most the fact that the quote hadn't been written before and the fact that Jesus is very isolated, very lonely. And I suspect that the cries of the crowd may have felt humble. But, but his testimony is that if, if the crowds were silent, even films would cry out. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love her. I love the fact that there isn't anything made that has been made that can't in some way praise God. And I, even the very storms, I just, I just love that. Thank you very much, Dana. I was actually also uh, struck by the cult as I actually have grown up in, in amongst equine. <laughs> and uh, I did break in uh, my own horse. And uh, yeah, it's not easy. And for even like a cult, like would even have the strength to carry a person. Like there are so many things here, but it was that. And also that the stones would cry out. 
it made me think of, um, I think I wrote it down. Yeah, Isaiah 55, when the trees of the field will clap their hands. And it's something about the atmosphere and um, the, the knowingness of nature and just the kind of, uh, just to be in like Jesus's presence and stuff like that. It reminded me about the um, Black Lives Matter uh, protests that I went to last year. And it was just like that amazing energy that we had to say something. And it was like, if we didn't, then the earth would. And so I think there is like something there that we should be listening more to like our hearts and like the atmosphere and like nature around us rather than other humans who put up like system, systems and orders in place. Um, there's lots of lovely details there. And um, I, let's have a look at what everyone else is saying. Um, please read this in your own time. There's so much <laughs> to read. Um, Jeff says, you can see the pressure of negative peace in the people who object to like statue toppling and the stuff with Extinction Rebellion. So there's definitely that kind of, I guess, uh, discourse is still going on. Um, uh, Micah says, um, I was honored by the quote. I think one thing, one of the things worth remembering when we are challenged on which crowd we would join is that they are in fact the same crowd. The people in Jerusalem who one week were praising Jesus, the next week they were condemning him. Um, they may have joined in the fight for justice in one moment, but by the time it got serious, the crowd turned their back on Jesus to stay comfortable. And we are all in both crowds and we must pray, though that we might pray for forgiveness in being in the latter and standing up, that we may follow in Christ's footsteps. Thank you very much for that, Micah. Um, I think it's very important. Udoka uh, also says, this was so thought provoking. I think one of the things I felt conflicted about, oh gosh, over the past year was that the all consuming sense of pre, pre I can't say that. Precarity had me searching for financial security and peace. Ah, okay, I understand. <laughs> Even if it came at the expense of um, complicity with systems oppressing others, I'm very comfortable with the disruption around blackness and my sexuality, but I felt a pull towards hegemonic power that I had to pray through. And I definitely agree with that, Adoka, because I felt like I, with, like in my example, having to buy from Amazon, even though I really don't want to. Um, 
So thank you so much. And um, I do encourage everyone to take the time to read through the chat and uh, get to know everyone's thoughts because it really is fascinating. And thank you all for sharing um, uh, with us this morning. And thank you to our wonderful panelists, Justin and Razan. Um, we'll now have done it with our prayers of intercession. Good morning, everyone. Let us pray. Our loving Lord, at the start of this Holy Week, this week when we remember and contemplate again the events that changed everything forever, we hold before you our world and its peoples. We pray for your kingdom to come on this earth. We pray that the government and rule of Jesus will be manifest in nations and societies and individuals, and that kingdom values will prevail over deceptions of nationalism, exploitation of resources and people, and a desire to outmaneuver the other. We pray for honesty, integrity, and justice in seats of authority. We pray for Myanmar and an end to the violence there. We pray for the things that make for peace. Lord, we continue to hold before you all those affected by the coronavirus, those who are ill, those who are frightened, those who are grieving. We pray for a global distribution of the vaccine that is in harmony with your kingdom and your values. We remember all those who are no longer with us and we pray, pray for your tender grace and healing to reach people and let them know that they are understood and that they are not alone. Let your kingdom come. We pray for the church and for our church. We mark the unfamiliar territory of the first anniversary of not being able to meet regularly together in person. We mark to the familiar territory of the Easter story and Holy Week the story of your last few days before your death. And at this point of the story, we live in uncertainty without the knowledge of resurrection. We are aware too of the uncertainty over the way ahead, the changed circumstances of how we do church and what church will look like in the future. Father God, we ask you to lead us in your paths. Indeed, we boldly trust you to lead us in your paths, in paths of righteousness, of right thinking and right behaviours, paths of honesty, truth, grace, and above all, love. Let your kingdom come among us. And Lord, we pray for ourselves, for we need you. 
at the start of this Holy Week. May we journey with you, even if we're frightened and don't want to go where you have to go. May we follow you. Lord, deliver us from crying Hosanna one moment, then in a few days, crying, crucify him, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Deliver us from being fickle, from lauding you in one breath and wanting you dead in the next. Deliver us from speaking curses over ourselves. Lord, let us be deeply grounded in you and in your liberating love and truths, enabled to follow you by the living presence of your love embedded deep in our hearts. Even though we imagine ourselves to be familiar with the story and even the ending, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to reveal fresh and new things this Holy Week. Truths never before seen, truths that will refresh us, nourish us, encourage us and sustain us as we journey together towards your death and towards our own deaths. Thank you for the gift of this day, this Palm Sunday. We remember and we are thankful. We worship you for Easter, for the things we see and understand and the mysteries still to be revealed to us. And so, as you taught us, Lord, we continue to pray. Let your kingdom come. Amen. Thank you, Dhamma, for those beautiful prayers. Shine your light in us, through us and over us, Lord. May we make a difference in this world for your glory so that your purposes would stand. Set your way before us this week. Amen.